Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private, and I want to thank you for joining me today. As I was preparing my mid-year outlook, I was struck by the fact that we spend much less time today than we did even six months ago talking about Washington policy, when in fact, it's as important as ever, particularly as it relates to CEO sentiment and the U.S. stock market. At the beginning of the year, in our 2021 outlook, I discussed the potential for changes in foreign policy to be a catalyst for growth this year in the global economy. One of the things that I was most interested in at the time was how President Biden's approach to China would change compared with President Trump and his administration. And interestingly, we found it to be very similar, if not in some ways, slightly tougher on China over the course of the last six months. One of the things to note is that the challenge with the Trump administration's dealings with China were that they were done in a way that was much different from his predecessors. Not only did the Trump administration focus on an America first policy, which was quite different than the hands off policy that the Obama administration had pursued. The fight for trade supremacy between China and the U.S. was played out amongst Twitter followers. And one of the things that was also challenging with the way that President Trump tried to tackle the inequality between the U.S. and China from a trade perspective, because it certainly exists, is that he didn't choose the route of working collaboratively with traditional American allies in order to bolster his case. And that's where we see the biggest change between the Trump administration and the Biden administration as it relates to the treatment of China. President Biden has made a very tactful decision, in our view, to attempt to strengthen the ties with other members of the G7 and focus instead of on specific trade issues, which obviously vary from country to country, from region to region, but instead focuses emphasis on human rights in order to create a unified front against China, which hopefully will result in more equality from a trade perspective. It's very early on in the process for President Biden, and we can't speak to the success or failure of this particular approach. But what is clear is that all of the tariffs that were in place at the end of the Trump administration are still in place today. And the rhetoric from President Biden has really not changed all that much in terms of thinking about protecting American workers and the competitiveness of American companies that are operating within China. And so, you know, our view is that the approach to China has not changed from an overall stance perspective. But the way that we're approaching improving the trade relationship with China over the long term is has certainly changed a bit. We do expect this to start to accelerate over the course of the next couple of months. Clearly, the administration has been focused on the pandemic 
um, and the economic recovery coming out of the pandemic and really getting, you know, things like cabinet seats and, and whatnot uh, situated over the course of the last six months or so. So we are hearing from Washington that some of the discussions um, be probably a bit too early to call them negotiations with China have um, have started once again and that the focus right now is on where we sit with the original phase one trade deal signed in January of 2020. Are the agreements being up? Is that agreement being upheld at this point? And how will we move forward from that trade deal, which was expected to be, frankly, a start um, for more in-depth and and sweeping negotiations between the U.S. and China? So with that as the backdrop, President Biden is also talking with the U.K. and the European Union and Japan about re-strengthening ties that were fairly strong prior to the Trump administration. And again, this is, you know, not only going to yield um, greater cooperation from a trade perspective, but also provide that um, support, if you will, for the conversations with China. What was even more clear at the beginning of the year, to us anyway, um, apart from the importance of trade policy over the course of the first couple of years of the Biden term, was that a Democratic sweep in Washington would yield more spending. And much of the emphasis was on this idea of a sweeping infrastructure package. And so while we have been surprised um, at the Biden approach to China, we've also been surprised at where this path of infrastructure spending has has led over the course of the last couple of months. So if you had um, asked me at the beginning of the year, what was the likelihood of higher taxes and um, this large scale infrastructure spending kind of moving through Washington and, and coming out the other side, I would have felt fairly confident that we would have both a, a fairly significant infrastructure spending package um, with infrastructure in quotes. And I'll talk a little bit about why I say that in a second. Um, But also that we would see higher taxes, both for individuals and for corporations coming out of that package in order to fund um, this significant increase in spending. What's happened over the last couple of months is that we've seen a meaningful amount of pushback uh, clearly from the Republicans who had always stated that they would be opposed to a, a very significant spending package, you know, upwards of $3 trillion or so. But also several Democrats who are concerned on the back of what was, you know, an unprecedented um, spend last year in combating the pandemic. And, you know, I think one would argue that certainly was justified in in many ways um, as far as from a, a fiscal response. But given that large amount of spending that is still going on, um, as there's a, a, a trail of spending that's going to persist likely through the end of this year um, related to pandemic rescue plans, um, that they feel uncomfortable with the size of the infrastructure spend and, and perhaps um, from both uh, the Republicans and some Democrats with the scope of that plan. So we, we knew that there would be a difference between what, 
um, the Republicans would support as as true infrastructure. Um, and that is the more traditional form of infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports. Uh, both parties seem fairly aligned on the fact that infrastructure needs to include both that traditional infrastructure, but also digital infrastructure in terms of um, developing better connectivity for rural areas, um, the expansion of the cell, to- cell phone tower network, et cetera. Um, but I think that where we've seen the pushback is um, in grouping what what feel like larger sweeping social programs um, into infrastructure spend. So um, child care, education, uh, those are, you know, have some roots in, in infrastructure. If you think about the ability to create facilities, uh, the ability to um, allow for faster licensing and permissioning at both the state, the fe- at, at the federal, state and municipal level uh, to create those those facilities. There is an infrastructure component to it. Um, but certainly, you know, there, you know, there is a bit of pushback that that's not really infrastructure spend. And perhaps we don't have the capacity from a budget perspective to take on those types of programs this year. The argument against that is that, you know, there are some, some grayer areas, healthcare, for instance, similar to the point that I made about you know, cellular infrastructure uh, and the ability to, um, you know, reach across what has been a, a fairly wide digital divide between urban and, and rural inhabitants here in the United States. You know, there are some, uh, many actually, who feel that you know, the pandemic really highlighted and spotlighted the need for um, more healthcare access in in rural areas. Um, in an underdeveloped areas. And so there, you know, there is that aspect of it that that may actually make it to a final bill. And so what's happened is over the last six weeks or so is we've started to see some Democrats and some Republicans come together with a compromise. And the compromise versions of these plans um, really do focus on what has been kind of traditional infrastructure. And the president has said that you know, he would like to see these plans in tandem, um, a more traditional infrastructure package that would support what I, I think most Americans would feel is a necessary spend by the federal government at this point, given the state of our um, infrastructure. The idea being to continue to improve um, and repair our existing infrastructure, but enhance it with um you know, high speed rail, public transportation improvements, um, and this cellular infrastructure spend. And then follow that up with a broader sweeping plan that includes healthcare and childcare, education, um, and probably, um, most importantly to certain members of the Democratic Party climate change. And so, the challenge with that is, is that this compromise deal is coming across without any uh, new taxes. So no increase in the corporate tax rate, which was widely expected to go back up to 28 percent from the 21 percent it was moved down to in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, but also no increases in or changes in individual tax rates, including the capital gains tax rate, 
um, the estate, estate tax exclusion, excuse me, and, um, you know, the, the, the highest income rate, um, as well as the step up in basis um, for securities held within an estate. So that in and of itself presents a problem because it limits the size and scope of the package with no um, with no tax increases being included. And so, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that, number one, um, you know, this blue wave in Washington hasn't exactly translated to, you know, kind of swift um, and mighty uh, changes in spending. Um, but it perhaps has shifted the agenda um, at least towards some of the social programs that the president ran on from a platform perspective. Um, and I think that from a legacy perspective, President Biden understands that this is really kind of a two year opportunity. Um, the midterm elections are still very much unknown. Um, and so, you know, over the course of this next six months or so, it's going to be critical for him to at least move the ball down the field on some or several of these key issues. The other question that I get is, you know, given that, given the size of this infrastructure package we've talked about could be three trillion and is now 950 million or, or, or billion, excuse me, or whatever it's, it's being discussed as, um, what, what's the impact on some of these more cyclical parts of the market? We, we certainly have seen in the course of the last six months that this strong run up in prices in the most cyclical parts of the market. And so I've been asked if that is because of these infrastructure packages. And admittedly, there are some pockets, areas like solar, for instance, that have experienced maybe a, a bit of a, a stronger lift from infrastructure expectations. But it's worth noting that overall cyclical names have been boosted by expectations for accelerating economic growth. And so you're still in the camp as we are, um, despite some, you know, meaningful concerns around the Delta variant, um, you know, the slowing pace of vaccinations and the now increasing number of cases here in the United States and globally um, as the, the Delta variant and, and likely the next more infectious variant take, take hold. Um, that's, you know, the 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 overall view that the economy globally is going to continue to accelerate um you know we we believe strongly in and so if you take that as the backdrop and you expect there to continue to be economic growth that's that's as robust um as could be expected coming out of a pandemic um and even if we see some near-term softness or concern um, this fall with the Delta variant, there does need to be just this overall push higher in cyclicals. Now, whether that has run its course or not, you know, that's an entirely different question. And there are, there is certainly some evidence that in areas like energy, for instance, um, with OPEC plus determining that they were going to increase supply and some of these supply chain constraints that have been creating some artificially high prices for inputs such as lumber um, easing, it, we could go back to a more normalized 
expectation for cyclical stocks. But in, in in my mind, it would not be because the infrastructure package is going to be smaller. Again, there are some pockets that have perhaps experienced stronger gains due to that infrastructure package that could be more vulnerable uh, if it turns out to be much smaller than anticipated. Um, but overall, the trend in cyclicals in areas like materials and energy and industrials has been driven more by these expectations for stronger growth than from anything from Washington. So where does that leave us? You know, with or without tweets, Washington remains a very important variable as we look out over the next year. And we're going to continue to provide content and context on what's happening inside the Beltway, both from a trade perspective, as well as from an infrastructure spending perspective, and honestly, from a COVID-19 response perspective, because right now there, you know, there's a lot of conflicting information. Um, government agencies aren't exactly all on the same page, and it's going to be very important for the administration to handle this next surge um, and the concerns around the Delta variant with care in order to create comfort that this economic rebound can be sustained. Thanks again for listening to this week's podcast. I want to encourage all of you to reach out to our team here at Boston Private with any questions or concerns you may have. If you have any questions on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives on the market, the economy, financial planning, and what's happening in Washington by visiting bostonprivate.com. If you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters while you're there. And be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you prefer to listen. And I look forward to coming to you again very soon. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, and other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by calling us at 800-422-6172 or emailing at info at bostonprivate.com. Boston Private Bank and Trust Company has been merged into and is now Silicon Valley Bank. Banking, lending, and trust products or services under the name Boston Private are offered by Silicon Valley Bank, a California bank with trust powers. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve System and is an equal housing lender. Silicon Valley Bank is the California bank subsidiary of SVB Financial Group, NASDAQ, SIVB. SVB Wealth Advisory, member FINRA and SIPC, SEC Registered Investment Advisor, offers brokerage and investment management products and services and is a wholly owned non-bank subsidiary of Silicon Valley Bank. 
Boston Private Wealth, an SEC-registered investment advisor, offers wealth management services and is also a wholly-owned, non-bank subsidiary of Silicon Valley Bank. Investment products offered by SVB Wealth Advisory and or Boston Private Wealth are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value. None of Silicon Valley Bank, SVB Wealth Advisory, Boston Private Wealth, or any of their respective affiliates provide tax or legal advice. Estate planning requires legal assistance. Please consult your tax or legal advisors for such guidance. Copyright 2021 SVB Financial Group, all rights reserved. SVB, SVB Financial Group, Silicon Valley Bank, Make Next Happen Now, and the Chevron device are trademarks of SVB Financial Group, used under license. The Boston Private name, logo, and any related marks are trademarks of SVB Financial Group and used under license.